1: Welcome to the Press 1 for Nick podcast. My name is Nick Limsdahl. My guest this week is Ian Golding. Ian is the CEO and founder of Customer Experience Consultancy and also an author of the book Customer What? The Honest and Practical Guide to Customer Experience. Ian, welcome to the Press 1 for Nick podcast.
0: Hi, Nick. It's so lovely to be with you.
1: Yeah, I, I'm also I'm excited to get started. And specifically, uh, before we actually get started on uh, the book, and as, you, as we dig into that, um, I ask every one of my guests, what's one thing that people might not know about you?
0: Oh, I, I suspect that there's more than one thing. But um, <laughs> the, the, the thing that I always live off, let's say, um, is that people will not know, especially outside of the UK, that I once appeared in a prime time BBC TV programme. It was a a living history programme called Turn Back Time The Family. And with, this is in 2012. With my wife and my three children, they took us back to 1900. And we lived a year as a Victorian family in the 1900s. We lived, sorry, not a year, a week, sorry. We lived a week into war and then a week in World War II. Wow. And it was prime time on BBC One. It went out just before the, the London Olympics, actually. And it's the only time in my life that I have been spotted in the street and, you know, people <laughs> pointing at me. And, but it's also the only time in my life I've been abused on Twitter. Um, as the TV program went out in the first, the first episode. Um, But if you search for Turn Back Time, the family on YouTube, you'll, you'll find me. (laughs) Uh,
1: I I now need to do that. So um, I think that's uh, definitely something that's very unique. Um, (laughs) uh, In in a, in a quick uh, summary, what was that experience like for you in those three weeks?
0: Do you know, it was phenomenal. I mean, it it was more than a three week experience. It was Mm a, it, 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 the whole thing lasted for over a year, really, from you know the starting process. And but, but it was, it was an amazing experience because it was filmed by the same people that do. Um, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the the series Who Do You Think You Are, mm, which is, uh, it, yeah. it, it's like a, a genealogy program, they take celebrities back and find out about their family mm-hmm, history. Yeah, and I didn't know a lot of my family history, which is one of the reasons they selected us because I knew nothing despite my father having tried for years to tell me. Um, Hmm. So it was amazing to to really find things out that I never knew. Um, I suspected, but never knew. But what was even more fascinating, two two other quick learnings. One was um, the effect it had on my children. At at the time, they were four, seven and eight. So they were very young, had no idea what was happening to them. Mm -hmm. Everything was taken away. You know, no TV, no toys, nothing. Um, uh, and the, the one of the overriding memories was in the, the third episode, the World War Two episode, they recreated an air raid. And um, when the air raid came to a finish, we were the first family to come out of the air raid shelter and they'd recreated bomb damage. Wow. And when they brought us into, into the house, that was, you know, was supposedly our house. Um, obviously, there was no electricity. There was no gas. There was nothing. And there was damage everywhere, bomb damage everywhere. And the kids just freaked. They all burst out mm. crying. And it was the only time that the producer said, we're going to stop filming because the children are too upset. And both me and my wife said, no, 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 you've got, you've got to film this, you know, because there are children right this- now. There's mm-hmm. children right now going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. This is the reality they'll be fine. You know, we'll explain to them; they'll be okay. Um, so yeah, but it's an amazing experience. But, but that final point, you know, for for that three week period, I had no technology. I had no connection to anything, and it was wonderful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's so cool. I'm gonna come back. I'll message you uh, when okay. I when You'll I actually go back it, and it. look at it. Yeah, take <laughs> <laughs> a peek. But uh, so to to bring back to the conversation, uh, you wrote this book, uh, Customer What, The Honest and Practical Guide to Customer Experience, and it is something that I've never seen before when it comes to customer experience. Yes. Uh, uh, I'm glad book. you said <laughs> it, 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 But but for the right reasons, and and I'm not just saying it like, hey, it's this is, this is a crazy book, but it, it's colorful, it's, um, it, it's, it's large, it's not just like a normal-sized mm. book. Um, and it, I, I love it, and I love the quotes, I love the color in it, um, I love the diagrams, but what made you write this
0: book? Um, I don't often get asked that question, actually. Um, but I, as I said, I, I became independent In 2012, actually, coincidentally, just before I went to film that program, I became independent. Hmm. And um, one of the first people I spoke to when I went independent, never having been an independent consultant before, was a member of the CXPA, a guy called Mike Wittenstein, who you may know. Um, And Mike said to me, Ian, you need to write. You need to start writing. And I'd never written anything before yeah. and bearing in mind this is 2012 so you know eight and a half years ago there weren't I mean there were blogs around but it that there, there weren't a plethora of blogs and mm-hmm. you know I'll give it a go I, I, I mean I, I had very little to do so I thought I'll just give it a go and I, I wrote my first article and actually quite enjoyed it and so I wrote another one and I wrote another one and I wrote another one and I ended up writing at least one article a week for the next six years Mm -hmm. Um, Some weeks I wrote more than one, you know, but it it just, it almost became a, it it was part of what I did. And I realized that for me, it was good. It was a way for me to, um, I suppose, express my perspective, my opinion, my views in a way that I'd never been able to do as an employee. But now I wasn't an employee. I could say what I wanted when I wanted. It was, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it, I found it very cathartic. I found it um, a brilliant way of getting feedback, um, and it actually, unwittingly, I didn't know at the time, enabled me to become quite well known around the world because it was a very easy way of, you know, sharing my views. Mm. And once I started writing, people kept saying to me, "You're going to write a book." Oh, I haven't got time to do that. No, 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 I'm not going to write a book. Um, and then eventually uh, I uh, I collaborate with many people around the world and a brilliant lady in the UK called Beth Richardson, who has worked with me on a number of engagements with clients said to me, I will help you in to pull that book together. And what we did was we leveraged a lot of what I'd already written actually, and supplemented it with lots of other things to pull together what you hold in your hands Mm. Um, and a a lot of the design and visual side of things is entirely down to Beth's brilliance. uh, You know, stopping me from thinking like a boring corporate person and thinking about that the experience of what does someone want to do with this thing? Mm -hmm. And what I didn't want to do was to create a boring book with just text. What I wanted was something that genuinely could help people. You know, I wanted people to read it and think, you know what, I'm going to do stuff that that was the sort of principle of the book. And so by creating this big thing with, you know, nice pages that you could write on and scribble on and stick things in. That, that's what I wanted. And, yeah. you know, I've had people tell me that I won't name him because he might be embarrassed. But, um, but I had a, a chap who said to me that, Ian, I leave your book in the trunk of my car said uh, right okay he said because when i get to work every morning and i get my briefcase out of my trunk i touch your book because it gives me hope mm. <laughs> Do you know and i thought well i never intended it for it to be biblical <laughs> um but but you know in a way that that's what i wanted it to be a physical thing i'm often asked why is it not an e-reader you know why mm. is it not an e-book because i didn't really design it to be like that you know i want people to feel it touch it and to be able to refer to it, and you know, I, I'm very hopeful that that's what I achieved. And um, people do seem to get a, a lot of value from reading.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly what you achieved. Um, I think it's an experience—a book in and of itself. Just, just the 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 easy use of going through it, uh, how organized it is, and. Um, it's fun to kind of flip through the next page because I don't know what's coming. No. and well, well, you know, uh, it's,
0: it, it's, it also does reflect my personality. You know, the, the, the danger of my writing is that I, I write as I speak. Mm-hmm. So that, there was a very early incidence of a lady who contacted me and said, Ian, I need to admit something to you. So what? She said, um, I was reading your book in bed the other night. And I said to my husband, it's like he's in bed with me. <laughs> and he wasn't very happy. And like, <laughs> so, um, but but you know, it's it, it, everything that underpins my approach to this subject is driven mm. by simplicity and practicality, mm. and, and you know that that's what I wanted to come through.
1: Yeah, very cool. Well, tell me about uh, this CX readiness scale inside the book.
0: Um, so, there are a number of things that I have leveraged over my career of doing this. So. I'm a nearly 48 year old without gray hair, which no one quite understands why. My wife tells me it's down to her. Um, And I've been doing this customer experience related activities for over 25 years. And for 17 of those years, I worked inside a variety of corporates. And you learn a lot. You know, you learn a lot when you are bashing your head against a brick wall, you're being patronized, you're being bullied. Um, and then when you come in to become independent and you start to see so many more things in so many different situations, you know, I realized very early on that to me, I was just speaking what I thought was the most obvious thing in the world. Mm. You know, that, that why wouldn't you want to do the right thing for your customer? I, I don't get it, you know, and, and there were many times it, ironically it's a little bit like coronavirus actually in the way governments are doing I just don't get why people are doing this Um, and I didn't get it and it suddenly occurred to me I can't remember exactly when it was before I became independent that just because this is obvious to me doesn't mean it's obvious to others and what I've got to stop doing is looking at these people thinking are you stupid (laughs) you know is there something There's not something wrong with me. There's something wrong with you. How can you not see this? I've got to stop thinking that way and think a lot more objectively and a lot more empathetically about why does someone feel that this is not an important subject to think about? And it's from that that I conceived this idea of the customer experience readiness index, um, a way of strategizing where do people sit today? when it comes to customer experience transformation. And as a result, what do I need to do to get them to a point where they recognise the need to change? Mm. And as you will have read in the book, you know, primarily that there are four phases of readiness that I talk about. The first phase um, I call the acknowledge phase. And this is very unpolitically correct, but I will often describe that as the alcoholic phase. Because this is where you will have individuals or teams of people that don't want to admit there's a problem. Mm. Now, we have all come across leaders in organizations that when you talk about customer experience, will look at you and think, what are you talking about? We do this already. We've been mm-hmm. doing this for years. We've got CRM. We don't need to do this. <laughs> you know, and th- th- unfortunately, there have been so many examples of this over the years, some of them very high profile. You know, and I, I will always refer to Toys R Us as a brilliant example of a board of directors stuck in the acknowledge phase, ignoring the online revolution, thinking mm-hmm. we're Toys R Us. We don't need to change. You know, We're never going to fail. We're never going to fail. And, you know, but, but we know that sadly, despite all of these high profile examples, it's still happening. There are still people stuck there. But again, as customer experience professionals, we've got an opportunity to change that. Because the reason they're stuck there is they don't have the information. But we can give them the information. We can give them the facts that help them to understand. you know what? There's a bit of a risk if we stay here. Why don't we diagnose? You know, what are the priorities that if we address them, actually, not only will we sustain ourselves, but we might actually grow. You know, and so how do we get into this diagnose phase? And what does that diagnosis need to look like? that then leads them to wanting to actually change something and improve something. But the fourth phase of readiness is the, the Nirvana as I call it. And it's what I call the improve phase and regrettably. And I I say this sincerely, whilst I've been working in this field for a long time, as have you, very few organizations have reached the fourth phase of readiness that improve phase, as I call it, Mm -hmm. because that is where, An organization has recognized and adopted a continuous never ending cycle of interconnected activity to continuously make the experience better able to meet the needs and expectations of customers. And there's so much stuff that's been done, but it's still that sustainability that we've not quite got to. And that's why for me that in that very, very simple way of understanding where you are and the challenge that you need to overcome so you can then determine what to do about it.
1: Yeah. And and I love that because it's so simple, but it's not easy.
0: Oh, you know, that's the, 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 this is the, the, the description to sum that up in different words that I always use. Customer experience is a science, but it's not an exact science. (laughs) And it's not rocket science, (laughs) you know, and, you know, and and this is the key. It's not difficult to understand, Mm -hmm. but it's difficult to do.
1: Yeah. And so is that the reason why so many companies are not in the improved section of the assessment? Uh,
0: The, the, there are a number of reasons and Mm -hmm. and it it does depend on geography to a degree as well. Um, You know, ultimately the the biggest fundamental problem is that customer experience is a long-term strategy. And, you know, it doesn't matter what sector, what industry you're in businesses, organizations are not thinking long-term you know, forget the pandemic. This is prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Businesses are only looking at the hand in front of their face. You know, they want short-term financial return and but customer experience doesn't give you that, you know? Uh, And so, that when you want organizations to focus long-term, that the other fundamental issue is that leadership is very rarely long-term, you know? Mm. And so you might convince a CEO today, but that CEO might leave in 12 months time. And then you've got to start all over again. And, you know, that there is a phenomenon that um, uh, I always forget if this um, children's song is known in the U S but there's a a children's party song called the hokey cokey. You know, you put one leg in, one leg yep. out, yep. and, and and I call this phenomenon the customer experience hokey-cokey, because you know companies start, and then something changes, and so they stop, and then they start again, and then they stop, and it's just but they never actually stay in, you know, yeah, um, and and so it, it's so difficult to get the focus to be sustained but then it becomes even more challenging when you throw a pandemic into the mix. Mm. Um, if your listeners haven't guessed, I'm English, you know, we've got Brexit to add on top of all of this, um, you know, which, which hasn't gone away it, that there's always going to be something else that gets in the way that yeah. prevents that long-term thinking. Um, mm-hmm. But this, this again is why I will always insist that our profession is even more important now than ever before. Because there is no chance this is going to happen without people like us. Um, yeah. And we need more of us to be constantly pushing and pushing to get customer experience onto the agenda.
1: Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't have said that any better myself. Um, from your perspective, who owns the customer experience?
0: So it's a question I ask a lot as you can imagine, as you probably know, I I spend about half of my time sharing knowledge with people. Mm -hmm. Um, and my immediate gut reaction to that question is everyone owns the customer experience. Um, and I think 99% of customer experience professionals I speak to would say the same thing. Mm -hmm. However, lack of understanding of that is huge. And, um, the biggest single cause, of the failure of organizations to transform is a lack of accountability. Mm. In my opinion, um, you know, when you look at the most customer centric organizations in the world, most of them were created that way. The overwhelming majority of legacy businesses have not successfully transformed and stayed that way. And that is because you need a certain type of leadership you need a certain type of mindset to be prepared to go into an organization and say enough we're not going to do it like this anymore we're going to do it like this and you know it it, there are so few truly transformational leaders in the world who have the courage the conviction the ethics to do that and that's why it doesn't happen and you know, if I just add to what I'm saying, I've said this for a number of years that if I'm critical of our profession, if, if I can say that, the criticism I still have is that where we failed is we fail to influence not those that lead organizations, but those who provide the money. You know, what we fail to do is to influence shareholders, mm. stock markets, those that are looking for ultimately growth, sustainable growth, we, we haven't addressed that community. You know, we have not managed to win the hearts and minds of the money people. That, you know, you want money, it will come, but you're going to have to wait, but it will come. And, you know, it, what amazes me is, you, you know, you can shout Amazon as many times as you want that it's now a trillion dollar business, but it took a... Mm-hmm. Flipping long time. Yeah, you know, they don't, don't want to wait. Well, then if you don't want to wait, the likelihood is that not only will you not grow, it's very possible that you might not even survive. So yeah. you know, what, what do you want?
1: <laughs> no, uh, I love that, uh, and I think that there's so many people that don't understand that, unfortunately. And and I love that you kind of brought up the the, uh, the, the soreness or what people don't want to talk about when it comes to customer experience. I think a lot of people talk about the, now I call it the pixie dust and fairy tales, like the good stories, the, yeah. Hey, look what we're doing to the customer. Look how we're solving these pain points. Look, but if we can't figure out the way to show the people the money yes. and, or give them enough buy-in from us that we're saying, trust us, Here's what data shows, and I can't show you that today because we haven't done it. But here's what we're going to do in the future, and here's what we're going to do in the short term. But we we need to continue to show that and communicate, and then be measured on it. Or else you're you're just you might as well have a a customer experience you know a day once a year and just talk about it instead of actually doing it.
0: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And you know the the uh, I suppose. Again, what interests me about the current period of time we're living through is that there will have been a proportion of organizations change their perspective as a result of this. A very small proportion, but there will have been a proportion. And that's a good thing. Um, There will be a whole load more who will fail. They they might not have failed yet, but they will. You know, I'm um, having spent seven years in online retail, uh, I, I, I've been predicting, and sadly, I, I don't want my prediction to come true, but I think it will. But in January, we will see traditional um, bricks and mortar retailers fail. Because, you know, th- we're we're going into what retailers call the golden quarter. Mm. You know, that it's all about Christmas, but Christmas is not going to be the same this year. They're not going to sell as much this year. Th- there is no doubt about that. right that's how they sustain themselves in these three months you know the rest of the year they don't make money they've made even less money and so you know i think in january we are going to see you know almost an armageddon scenario for for many many businesses around the world and uh, you know that whilst again that it's horrific what this pandemic has done is accelerate the demise of many of those because many of them would have failed anyway all this yep. has done is speed this up.
1: I was just going to ask that. Is that, is, did these companies, it magnifies their brilliance or um, demise of customer experience and that that helps her deters them uh, for success or failure um, yeah. moving forward?
0: Uh, absolutely. You know, th- at the end of the day... W- it's funny when you think about agile being the, the flavor of recent times, but mm-hmm. agility is not a new word, <laughs> you know, adaptability, agility, that this is what organizations have needed to do for, well, ever since they were created, you know, yeah. not, not just now, um, uh, but it's taken this for companies to think, Oh, you know, how do I get my people to work from home? Yeah, but your people have been asking you to work from home for the last <laughs> 10 years, you know, and now suddenly you're going to have to try and figure it out. You know, it's not good enough. Um, yeah. And you know, fundamentally, it, it, the, the, the worst thing about all of it is the effect on human beings mm-hmm. because millions of employees are going to, to find serious hardship as a result of this. Um, and for me, the people to blame for that are not governments, it's not a virus, but it's, it's people who run companies badly and yeah. are not thinking long-term.
1: And, and why is that? Um, Why why are they not thinking long-term because they're just trying to survive and that's what they're measured on is something that's not focused on the customer.
0: I'm going to make a massive generalization. Yeah. Um, So it it is a generalization and there are many who are not as I'm describing, but Mm -hmm. you know, why is that happening? It's two things. One greed. Um, You know, I I have said to many people that I never thought I'd become anti-capitalist doing what I do for a living, but you know, when you see it in so many scenarios, it, it, it's a horrible thing to see, you know, when it's the, the only interest is how much money can we make, you know, and I don't care who I trample over to get to it. Um, that's part of it. But the, the other part is a lack of education, you know, um, and I don't mean an academic education, but I mean an education and understanding how to run a business in 2020 Hmm. you know most students coming out of universities or colleges are still taught traditional marketing principles you know they are taught traditional ways of running a business 50 years ago Hmm. um you know customer experience thinking is not integrated into that but but what's even worse is that most companies are run by people who didn't have any education in, in any of this Yes, they were educated in economics and balance sheets and, you know, but, but they were not educated in understanding the importance of managing experiences for both customers and employees and as a result, shareholders. Um, and, you know, the, the sad thing is, is that too few are willing to learn, you know, and um, I, I don't want to offend many of your listeners, but I, I, I think I, we already I,
1: have. So let's just keep going. Well,
0: Well, then I I suspect I may do, because I I don't want this to sound like a nationalistic thing, Um, especially with you guys going into an election. But let's not say any more about that. Um, But, you know, I I always look at the U.S. Now, I'm in a very unusual position that I work in 44 countries around the world. So I see this everywhere. And people always say to me, you know, who's best at this? Is it the U.S.? I said, well, actually, quite the opposite, really. You know, I I would argue that the U.S. is the that probably the land of the greatest extremes. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I believe that the U.S. does have the very best examples of customer centricity, but I also believe it has the very worst examples of customer centricity, and in fact, some examples that would make your toenails curl. Um, and you know, the problem with the U.S. is that the U.S. does very often start these things. You know, the momentum, the the knowledge, the inspiration starts in the US. But then people start saying the same thing over and over and over again. And it's not so much momentum, it's repetition and repetition and repetition until you get to a point where people like, I'm not hearing anything new here. You know, and actually nothing's changing. So I'm not going to do that. Yeah, we've been doing this for years. Um, And, you know, I've said for the last couple of years that what I've seen in the US, having worked with US clients and having visited the US in the last few years, the US has become when it comes to customer experience, very arrogant, very ignorant and just almost apathetic towards customer experience. Because, yeah, we do all of this. We have nothing more to learn we're doing it all already, but so little's changing. And so, yes, you may be doing something, but if nothing's changing, then whatever it is that you're doing is not having the desired effect. And I think as a result, it's probably become even harder for customer experience professionals in us companies to, you know, to get them to wake up and say, no, we haven't done it. You know, we haven't made it. No NPS isn't enough. You know, it, it becomes even harder and so i think to a degree in the us it's going backwards mm-hmm. um in the uk not not to anyone to think that i'm picking on the us uh, i think the uk has flatlined you know it's almost just nothing it's like we're dead when it comes to customer experience we don't get better we don't get worse it's just it, it's just nothing mm-hmm. but then i also have this incredibly fortunate situation to see what the us and the uk would describe as less developed economies you know the uh, Eastern Europe, parts of Africa, where right now experiences are not as good. But what's different is that their education is as good as ours, if not better, but even more importantly, they have the desire and the willing to change. And they want to learn. They want the knowledge and they will do something with that knowledge. And so I believe that in the net, and again, this pandemic may accelerate it, but in the next five to 10 years, I think um, countries like the US, like the UK, are at risk of being overtaken by uh, economies, by countries who aren't resting on their laurels. You know, we're the British Empire. You know, not anymore. We're not. You know, there are these that there, there are parts of the world that want to grow, and they will grow, and they will beat us.
1: Hmm. I, I heard uh, uh, it was on a podcast uh, a while ago, and it said. To be elite, you need to be productively uncomfortable
0: 100%. And,
1: and, and, and if I think of that as an athlete if if they just said hey i 'm going to run five miles a day and then i 'm going to go out and win them the New York marathon like that just is not going to happen uh, you need to treat your your company like a fine-tuned machine and understand what those weaknesses are and then work backwards to try to fix them
0: you know i i'm very lucky i consider myself lucky to be ex-ge but i was ge when jack welsh was still ceo Mm. um which again shows my age and you know that is exactly what jack welsh did you know he turned that organization into such a finely tuned machine And, you know, I always remember speaking to senior leaders at GE who said, if you ever met Jack Welsh, you know, it was the worst experience, but the best experience of your life, because he would ask you things about your business that you'd be thinking, how on earth does he know that? How does he know that? And if you don't know the answer, you know, you you better find out that answer pretty quickly. But that's what he did. It, it's not about humiliating people, but it's make, you've got to know your stuff and you know, that's, that's the same as Amazon. You know, I, I tell a lot of people that Amazon's success is not a fluke. Amazon's success is not just down to Jeff Bezos. Amazon's success is down to the fact that Jeff Bezos understood leadership and you know, to be a leader on Amazon, they got 14 leadership principles. 14 principles, and you've got to be, you've got to demonstrate every four, every one of those 14 principles. It's not easy to be a leader at Amazon, you know, but I, I, again, so much of this is just gone, um, yeah. you know, in businesses around the world, but it has to come back again. Hmm.
1: That's awesome. So I, I wrap up every podcast with two questions. Yeah. And the first question is, uh, what book or person has influenced you the most in the past year And then the second one is if you could leave a note to all the customer experience professionals and Monday morning at 8am it hits their desk, what would it say?
0: So leader is a nice segue from what I've just been saying. Um, For me, the most inspirational or transformational leader of the moment who every time I see him write something or say something, it inspires me is the current CEO of Microsoft. Um, Now, I ask a lot of people around the world, do you know who the CEO of Microsoft is? And they don't know, which is part of the point. Mm. Um, But Satya Nadella, I I think, is an amazing man. He's got a huge amount of courage. And to tell Microsoft that we've got to stop being a company that knows everything and become a company that learns everything Mm. demonstrates to me that he has both the um, intellect and empathy and understanding to ensure that Microsoft is here for many, many decades to come. So, um, yeah, he, he's, he's a very interesting man. Uh, And in terms of the second question, um, there are many things that I would say actually, but the overriding message I would leave on the desk of a CX professional within an organization is, are you doing the right thing for the right reason? Because So much of the time, as we inferred in our conversation at the beginning of this podcast, we are in a position where people are making us feel as though we're doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. That there are times where we will doubt ourselves. There are times where we will think, should I actually really be here doing this? And I've always said to the teams that I've worked with, you know, as long as whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing for the right reason, you know, you've got nothing to lose. You know, if you're doing this, you know, cause you want to pay rise, you know, then you shouldn't be doing this job. Yeah. If you're doing this, because you want to be popular, you shouldn't be doing this job. But if you, if you've done the right thing for the right reason, you can hold your head up high knowing that you are operating as an effective customer experience professional. That's what I would tell.
1: You. Yeah. That's some great advice. Uh, appreciate that, Ian. What's the best way for my listeners to get a hold of you?
0: Um, well, some would say that I'm too visible. Um, <laughs> I would say I have a face for radio, um, but that, that's a different story altogether. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, I'm uh, uh, gen- generally all over LinkedIn. Uh, my Twitter handle is IJ Golding. And of course, if people want to buy my book, they're most welcome to. Um, and you can get that on Amazon.
1: And and just a reminder, the book is Customer What? With a question mark. Uh, The Honest and Practical Guide to Customer Experience. So I would highly recommend you taking a uh, look at the book. Like you said, uh, open it up, uh, read all the way through it, and then earmark it and and write all over it because that's what it's made for. Ian, thank you so much.
0: I love pictures. Send me a picture with stop sticking out of it. Yeah. There you
1: go. There you go. I, I will do that, and I encourage everybody else to do the same. Ian, I appreciate your time. It's been a blast. Uh, I think we've ruffled a few feathers along the way, but I think sometimes in customer experience, as in, in any industry, it's needed.
0: As long as we've ruffled feathers for the right reason, then that's okay. That's right.
1: Thanks, sir. Have a great it's day. A
0: pleasure. Thank you so much, Nick.
1: Hey, listeners, can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today if so please consider sharing this episode with them and last if you would like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests you can go to press one forward slash podcast
0: thank you for listening to this episode of press one for nick if you enjoyed the podcast please subscribe and share until next time focus on your customers thanks for joining us for this session of, CX of M radio